when I preached 27 years ago, I preached that message here. So I've been around this area for quite a while, and it's good to be here uh, this morning and see some of my old friends that I've known for many years. Um, I think that out of all the people, probably the one that I've known the longest is Alan Rindles. And uh, he and I grew up together at Blackhawk School, and uh, we didn't live very many blocks apart from each other. And so uh, it was good to see Alan. And uh, well, and there are others of you, we used, to, uh, we used to actually attend the Faith Reformed Church on Downing Avenue, if you remember that one. And then we would do, uh, we would do uh, musicals together with you guys, and so I remember doing those, and so I was a part of that. So I've been around uh, for quite a few years uh, with many of you, and so it's just kind of good to be back. I've been a pastor for over 35 years. I've been in full-time Christian ministry for over 40 years. I actually started at KNWS in Waterloo. I was an announcer there. And then I left there and I went with Youth for Christ, working with high school students. Then I left there and went to seminary. Then I came back to Cedar Falls, went to Orchard Hill Church where I was a pastor. And then I left Orchard Hill, went to Green Hill Baptist, which is just down the road. I left there and went to Parkersburg where I was a pastor there. I left Parkersburg, went to Hudson where I was a pastor. Then I left Hudson. I actually retired from Hudson, but then the church in Dunkerton called, asked if I would fill in for a couple weeks. I was there for six years, <laughs> and uh, I just finally, at the end of September, I uh, retired from uh, Dunkerton. And so for the last nine months, my wife and I have been doing something that I really enjoyed. We've been visiting churches. And uh, so we're actually looking for a church where we can become a part of uh, the, the group and uh, find a place where I can serve. And uh, so, so we've been doing that. I don't know if you know this, but we live five blocks from this church. So we could have walked this morning, but... And when we walk our dog, we often walk by here and see Dave. He's, you know, always in his office looking out, wanting somebody to talk to. So... <laughs> So we walk by here uh, frequently, but uh, so uh, we are well acquainted with uh, the people in this area. We've been here a long time. And, uh, but the reason, the real reason that I decided to speak on something else is because we've been visiting churches, and one of the things that I noticed is that many churches are very frustrated that, that many churches do not have a lot of optimism. Uh, there's not a lot of hope in a lot of churches. Uh, we just came through the pandemic, and churches lost people during that time. You know that churches closed down, and a lot of those people didn't come back. In fact, every, every church that we've been at, and I've talked to the leadership, they all say the same thing, that their numbers are down because people aren't coming back. And it's very frustrating. And Sometimes I think the church can get discouraged and think that we really can't make much of a difference in the world because we look around, we see darkness and uh, all the things that are happening in the world and we wonder why we can't have an impact. And so um, I, I keep telling my wife that I think that pastors need to be more positive and uh, to, to, to speak uh, about the things of God, to remind us who God is and the power that God has. Um, so that we can be encouraged and so that we can have boldness when we go out into the world. And so that's kind of what I would like to do. And we just spent a week in uh, Nashville, 
And uh, so I spent that a lot of my time uh, preparing my message uh, for today. But um, that's, that really is what I want us to do, is to just uh, begin to have a positive attitude about what the church can do uh, in the world. And um, I think we're, we can see that in Ephesians chapter 1. The Apostle Paul wrote the book of uh, Ephesians. He wrote it to the church at Ephesus. But it was also what is called a circular letter, so it would have been uh, circulating to other churches. So it's not just to the church at Ephesus, but the, the, this letter was written in 60 A.D. And if you know the history uh, from 60 A.D. to 70 A.D., these were terrible times for Christians during that first century uh, because for uh, years they had been persecuted by the Jews. The Jews had persecuted the church ever since the time of Jesus. And the apostles started the church, you know, and, and so the Jews were persecuting the church that whole time. But what's going to happen very soon after this letter is written is that not only is the church, not only uh, are the Jews persecuting the church, but the Romans are also going to persecute the church. In fact, if you read about Nero, Nero hated Christians and it did terrible things to them. And so um, all of these Christians were going to go through incredible hard times. So Paul is writing this letter to encourage them. It's not that much different than where we are today. We need a word of encouragement, I think. And the church needs to be encouraged. If Paul were here, I think he would say the same kinds of things to us that he was writing to the church at Ephesus because our situations are really not that much different, although I think theirs was uh, much uh, worse than ours. But we're beginning to face some of the things that uh, they were facing. So I'm hoping that we can find encouragement. So let's look at Hebrews chapter 1. I want to begin at uh, verse 15. What we have here after Paul's introduction uh, uh, as he writes to this church is he prays for them. And there are four things that Paul prays for this church that I think are important for us. And if he were here, I think he would pray the same four things for us. Uh, we're not going to be able to look at all four. We'll, we'll look at the first two uh, things today. And um, then I'm going to have to come back next week, even though I know Dave has Pastor Ed lined up, and Ed's going to be here. But I think you need to call Ed and tell him, you know, we need to have Ron back here. So, but <laughs> Ed and I, we used to be on staff together at Orchard Hill, so we know each other pretty well. Okay, this is what he writes at uh, the church at Ephesus. He says this, For this reason, Ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet, and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Okay, let's take a look at this. He prays four things for the church. He prays this. 
He's prayed, first of all, that the people will know God, that they will know him better. Second thing he prays is that their eyes will be opened so that they will know the hope that they have. I mean, in their situation, it was very easy to become hopeless, but he wanted them to understand that in, in, the, in the worst of situation, we still have hope. Third thing he prays for them is that their eyes will be opened so that they will know the riches of God's glorious inheritance. And finally, the fourth, Paul prayed that they might understand the incomparably great power for those of us who believe. Now, those are four very important things for the church to realize today. And we're going to look at the first two. We won't have time to get to the second two. But let's talk first of all about this, that Paul prayed that God that God's people would know him better. God desires that we know him. Years ago, when I was in college, a book came out by J.I. Packer, and probably many of you have read this. It's called Knowing God, and it is a classic. If uh, you uh, want to read a good book that's hard reading, it's really fairly hard reading, but it's by J.I. Packer, Knowing God. And in here, he's got a section where he talks about what happens when people really get to know God? What, what happens to people? Uh, what changes in their life? And this is what he says. Uh, he's got four points. He says this, people who know God have great energy for God. I mean, if you look at a church and you see people who have great energy for God, who want to serve God, who want to be used by God, it's because they know God. The greater you know, the more you know about God, the more energy you have for Him. And so Paul says that's, that's one of the characteristics of someone who knows God. And again, Paul is praying that these people would know Him, and so he's praying that they would have great energy for God. Second thing he, uh, that J.A. Packer says in this is that um, those who know God have great thoughts of God. When they think about God, they think about someone who is majestic, someone who is awesome, someone who is powerful, someone who is all-knowing, someone who is on the throne, who is in control, and a God who is loving and gracious. These are the, the thoughts that people have. People who know God have these kind of thoughts about God. They know that God's ways are right and uh, that we are to live in obedience to him. See, that's the kind of thoughts that people will have when they know God. The, the greater you know God, uh, the greater will be your thoughts of God. So that's the second characteristic. The third characteristic is this. He says this, those who know God have great boldness for God. Look at the disciples. After the resurrection of Jesus and, and he sends the Holy Spirit, they have this incredible power. See, people who know God have great boldness for God. They go out and they preach, they testify, they share what they know. Boldness is a sign that you know God. It's no wonder that Paul was praying this for them. I pray that they will know God because these people needed boldness. Uh, they were in a dark situation. They were living in a dark world. And, and they needed boldness, so they needed to know God. The fourth thing that he says is that those who know God have great contentment in God. They're not looking to the world to satisfy their needs because they are content, they are satisfied in their relationship with God. And the, and the greater you know God, the greater your contentment, the less attraction the world has. 
So Paul prayed that these people would have this uh, knowledge of God because when they know God, um, then all of these other things happen as a part of that. Now, the question that you might ask when we say that you need to know God, the question is, well, how, how do we get to know God? I mean, God is a spirit. He is uh, distant. Uh, how is it possible for us to get to, go, to know God? And again, the Bible tells us uh, how we can uh, get to know God. And there are three ways. The first one is through nature. Remember Romans chapter 1, Paul is writing to the church there, and he says, you know, no one will ever be able to say that they did not know God because God has revealed himself in nature, in creation. Everyone can see that there is a God through creation. And he says that uh, people who deny that are exchanging the truth of God for a lie. And so it is obvious in creation. If you want to know something of the majesty of God, the awesomeness of God, then you look at creation, you look at the universe, and you see I, some of the things that we are finding out about the universe today, Just our, our minds cannot even conceive how large the universe is. It's just, I, I read some of this stuff that we're getting from the, the telescopes that we're sending out in space, and, and the, it is so large that, that our mind cannot even comprehend it. But see, at the same time, our telescopes are, 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 are able, or our microscopes are able to see things that are smaller and smaller, and we begin to see all of the complexity even in a single cell. It is just amazing. Um, Michael Behe has written a book that I find just fascinating um, uh, called Darwin's Black Box, where he is a, a microbiologist and he looks at the single cell and he says that it's impossible that the single cell could have ever just happened by chance because it is so complex. It is more complex than we ever dreamed it was. He calls that irreducible complexity. It's just impossible. And so the more we learn about God, the more... I think the more in awe we should be as we stand back and look at him. What an amazing creation. But it reveals to us the nature of who God is. Okay, so that's one. In nature, we also get to know um, who God is through the person of Jesus. God has revealed himself in his son, Jesus, in uh, Colossians. In fact, if you want to turn just a couple books past uh, Ephesians, in Colossians chapter 1, at verse 15, Paul writes this. He says, he is the image of the invisible God. Talking about Jesus. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The word there is icon. It means a picture. It means when you see Jesus, you see God. In fact, Jesus said, if you see me, you see the Father. And, and so uh, the, the two are when he, God has revealed himself to us in his Son. If you look at verse 19 of that same uh, chapter in Colossians, he says, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. All of God's fullness dwells in Jesus. The word there is pleroma. It's from the Greek. It means, it means everything that is in God is in Jesus. And so when you look at Jesus, that is God. So how do you get to know God? You get to know Jesus. You look at Jesus. You study Jesus. You see how he treated people. You see what he taught. You listen to him. And in that way, you also get to know Jesus. Well, and then the third way that God has revealed himself is in Scripture. And you go back to the beginning, you see God reveals himself as a creator. He, sees, he reveals himself as a redeemer. He reveals himself as someone who, who loves uh, people. 
uh, someone who is gracious, uh, someone who is seeking people to follow him, and you begin to put all of this together as you study Scripture, as you study Jesus, as you look at nature, it all begins to, to tell us something about who God is. And so this, I think, is a, a lifetime journey. And I think it's something that would be good for us to pray for each other, that we would get uh, to know God, that we would know him more. But all of these ways, these are what we can do uh, to help us get to know God. Now, um, the other thing is that uh, God has also given us the Holy Spirit. And it's the Holy Spirit who guides us in our, in our getting knowledge of God. He is the one who helps us understand Scripture. He is the one who helps us understand uh, Jesus and what Jesus is saying. So God has given us all of these tools uh, to help us get to know God. We have everything we need to know Him. And, and God's desire is that um, we get to know Him. Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 9 said this at verse 23. He said, Let not the wise man boast about his wisdom, or the strong man boast about his strength, or the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord." So God said, if you're wise, don't boast about that. If you're strong, don't boast about that. If you're rich, don't boast about that. If you're going to boast, boast in the fact that you know me. God says, that's what I take delight in. I am delighted when people know, know me. That's what brings God joy is when we get to know him. He wants us to know him. So um, that's what Paul's praying for them. Um, he wants us to know who he is. Okay, so Paul prayed that they would know God. And again, I think that is we ought to be praying that for each, for, for each other. Lord, help us to know you better. Help us to know who you are. Help us to know uh, uh, you so that we can serve you uh, greater, so that we can have more um, uh, energy for you, those kinds of things. Okay, so that's the first thing that Paul prays for them. Uh, for the church at Ephesus. And the reason, again, the reason he's praying that is because they live in dark times. And it's very easy to become discouraged. But when you keep your eyes on him, then the world is not so scary. It's not such a scary place. It's not so dark when you keep your eyes on him. And so that's what Paul is uh, trying to convince us of here. Now, the second thing is that uh, Paul prayed is that we might know the hope to which he has called us. Let's look at that in verse uh, 18. He says this, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. And again, if anyone needed hope, it was these people. They were living in uh, tumultuous times and uh, they needed hope. Sometimes it seems like our problems, even in our world today, are, uh, are so big that uh, many people uh, give up hope of ever solving them. You, you look at crime, and it seems like crime just keeps getting worse. How can we ever uh, uh, 
you know, conquer that? What about poverty or, or racism or uh, terrorism or drugs, uh, immorality, uh, war, all of those kinds of things. We look around the world and, and, and all of these things seem to be uh, getting worse and worse. And so it's very easy for people to lose hope. And uh, not only that, I mean, but it could be on a personal level. There could be family issues, financial issues in a home, health issues. I mean, there are so many issues that come into our life that can cause us to lose hope. Well, what Paul believes is that no matter what comes our life, we ought to be people of hope uh, because of who God is. And so, first of all, we need to get to know who He is. Now, it was like this in Paul's day. I mentioned that uh, before. But it's interesting because the disciples, the followers of Jesus in the first century, believed that uh, God entered into the world in the person of Jesus. And the reason He did is because He brought hope to a hopeless world. If you look at the situation when Jesus was born, the world was pretty hopeless. It was pretty dark. And so uh, God sent his son Jesus into the world to bring hope. Paul himself believed that the death and resurrection of Jesus was a cosmic event that changed the world forever. And when, the, uh, and, and when you begin to um, uh, look at it, you begin to realize that that's exactly what happened. That when Jesus came into the world, that it changed the world forever. This event, the, the, the life of uh, Jesus, his death and his resurrection, changed everything. Therefore, Paul is praying that they might know this hope to which they had uh, been called. And so um, I think we need to focus on hope as well today. Um, <clears throat> Isaiah 54. Turn to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations. It's one of the big prophets in the, uh, in the, in the Old Testament. But we want to look at uh, oh, Isaiah 54, not Jeremiah. Isaiah 54. And I want to look at verses 1 through 10. Now, when I first read this, you may wonder, what in the world this has to do with what we're talking about? What does this have to do with hope? But it really does. And so let's look at Isaiah 54, beginning at verse 1. And let me tell you a little bit about what the world was like when Isaiah was writing. Isaiah is writing, and disaster had come on Israel, on the nation of Israel. Uh, both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom had been conquered. Uh, they had been taken as slaves. The, the temple was destroyed. The walls were, were knocked down. People were living in other countries uh, that were not their own. And, and, uh, and for many people, there was no hope that they would ever come back. It was, th these were dark times for them as well. And so Isaiah prophesied during that time, and this is what he says to these people who are experiencing all this. He says this. He says, Sing, O barren woman, you who never bore a child, burst into song, shout for joy, you who were never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband, says the Lord." Now, this is a picture that Paul is using. He's saying, imagine a woman who has not had children. He says to this woman, sing, because you will have more children than the woman who is married. He's saying, don't look at your situation. Just realize that God is going to do something incredible. What he's really talking about here is not a woman. He's talking about Israel. 
but he's using that as a picture. Now look at the second verse. He says this, Enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch your tent curtains wide. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. For you will spread out to the right, to the left. Your descendants will dispossess nations and settle in their desolate cities. So what's the next thing he says? He said, here you are living in, in, in these places that are not your home, but he's saying you need to build bigger houses. You need to expand because I am going to bless you. And so it doesn't, from their perspective, it doesn't make sense, but God is saying build because I'm going to do something great here. Okay, now look at verse 4. He says this, Don't, do not be afraid. You will not suffer shame. Do not fear disgrace. You will not be humiliated. You will forget the shame of your youth and remember no more the reproach of your widowhood. For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is the God of all the earth. The earth now, remember, they are scattered all over. Now, this is what the prophet says in verse 6. The Lord will call you back as if you were a wife deserted and distressed in spirit. A wife who married young, only to be rejected, says your God. For a brief moment I abandon you, but with deep compassion I will bring you back. In a surge of anger, I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. To me, this is like the days of Noah, when I swore that the waters of Noah would never again cover the earth. So now I have sworn not to be angry with you, never to rebuke you again. Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken." nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. Okay, Israel is at this very low point in their history. No hope, there's no hope of ever getting back. The, the northern and southern kingdoms had both fallen, but God tells them to sing. I just, the, the, the first thing, thing that he says in, in this passage is sing. O barren woman. It reminds me of the song that we sang this morning, Raise a Hallelujah. I don't know if you paid much attention to the words of that song, but that fits perfectly with the message that we have today. Because that song says that we will raise a hallelujah. It doesn't matter how dark the world is. It doesn't matter what my situation is. I am going to sing. And see, that's exactly what God is telling the Israelites to do. Yes, you're in a bad situation. Yes, you're not where you hope to be. But sing because there is hope. And God is on the throne and he is going to bring you back and do a great thing. So, um, that, we see that in Isaiah. Let's look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. Because Peter also was a man of hope. 1 and 2 Peter, that's clear at the end. And we want to look at 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9. And listen to what Peter says. And uh, now, Peter actually is writing to Christians about the same time that Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus. Uh, Peter's actually writing four years later, and things had actually gotten worse by the time he writes. So this is what he writes. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. So he is saying exactly the same thing that Paul is saying. In fact, he talks about an inheritance. Paul talked about an inheritance. But Peter is talking about because of what Jesus did, we have this incredible hope. This is a hope that comes from God himself. And uh, it comes because of God's great mercy. It is a God that, it is a hope that comes because of the resurrection of Jesus. And, uh, and it is a hope that will keep us going through all kinds of trials. And again, Peter's writing to people who were going through the same kinds of trials that the Christians in Ephesus were going through. They needed hope. So, uh, I am convinced that the church ought to be people of hope. That we ought to be people who are optimistic. When I think about it, some of the people that I talk to as Christians, they have hope. But the, but the hope that they have, I, I, I think, is not right. They look at the world and they see it getting darker and it seems to be getting worse and worse. And in a sense, they rejoice in that because they say, well, that means that the end is near and Jesus is coming and he will set up his kingdom and he will make all things right. And so their hope is in the fact that the world will get worse, but Jesus will come and make it right. See, and I don't think that was ever Jesus' plan for the world when he came. Because if you look at Jesus, let's look at uh, Matthew 28. When Jesus was getting ready to leave this world, l listen to what he says. He says this in 28, 18. And you know this passage well. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Jesus has just been crucified and resurrected. He's about to send uh, into heaven. And he says this, I have all power and authority. It's all mine. I, I am in control. And then he says, since that's true, he says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. I surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, does that sound like Jesus instituted the church, set the church up, gave them instructions, and expected that someday the world would overcome the church, and the church would become so weak, and the world become so powerful, that he would have to come back and rescue it, and he would set up his kingdom. That's not Jesus' vision at all. His vision was, I have all power. I have all authority. I am with you. I am giving it to you. You go out into the world and you make disciples of every nation. See, that's the picture of a church being victorious. That's the, the, the vision of a church that is winning, that is, um, that is overcoming darkness with light. I, I think that's Jesus' vision. I think that is still his vision. I think he's still calling us to go out and to be the light of the world, uh, to be the salt, to keep the world from going bad. And I think he has given us the power and the resources that it takes in order to do that. And so, 
I think that churches, instead of becoming pessimistic and defeated and discouraged and begin to hide in their churches, need to leave their churches and realize that we have a power that, in, in fact, the next message that I'm going to preach when I get back here ever would be this, would be the second one where he says, I, I pray that they would know the power that is available to him. It's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. We as a church have that power today. We can change the world. We can chase the darkness away. But we have to, it all comes back to knowing God because that's where our boldness comes from. That's where our power comes from. That's where all of our resources come from. It is in getting to know God. So again, it comes back to this. My challenge to you is, is do what you can to get to know Him. There is nothing greater in life. There's no greater uh, a goal in life than to know God. And that will change your life and it will put you on a, a path that will change the world. And so, and, and the power is there, the, the means are there, we just have to step in and believe it and do it. So let's do that. Let's pray together. Lord, I am just amazed when I think about the vision that you have for the world. You want people to know you. You want uh, people to live holy lives. You, 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 it is not your will that, that there is immorality all around us. It's not your will that there is, is hatred everywhere. It's not your will that there is racism in the world. That none of this is your will. And you told us to pray, Lord, that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we still pray that together. Lord, I pray that, uh, that there would be peace in the world. That's your will. I, I pray that, that people would love each other, that they would learn to forgive each other, and uh, that, that there could be morality, and, and that we would live in obedience to you. That is your will, and I pray that uh, for us. Lord, thank you uh, for your power that is available to us today. Work in each one of our lives. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.